Father in heaven, thank you so much for such a beautiful day, and thank you for the blessings of this day, and thank you that there are more blessings to come in your word tonight. Father, um, I sure appreciate my brothers and sisters here, and what a great encouragement they are to me, and I, and I know that your word is a great encouragement to all of us. That's why we gather here. That's why tonight, it's, just, it's simple, just breaking down verse by verse, talking about what this fantastic and wonderful revelation is all about. And Father, as we go through these things again, help us to keep our eyes on Jesus. Remind us again and again that the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus. That he is tantamount, he is paramount here. He is the, the focus of all that we're studying. Whether Old or New Testament, Lord Jesus, we study to glorify you, to know you, to bless you, to be more aware of you in our lives and to see you everywhere. And so we pray that you bless our time tonight with, with that end in mind. But also show us the things that we need to know and give us clarity, Father. The Holy Spirit, we wait to hear from you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to give you kind of a, a heads up on this as we go into this. There are some real different opinions on chapter 14 and on what happens. I can't be dogmatic, but I'll let you know when we get there tonight, I will give you my opinion. And it's simply my opinion because there's some challenging verses in this chapter. So I'll tell you what I think, but I don't want you to just say, oh, that's what it is. No, that's what Rick thinks. And, I, and you need to go back and look over the verses yourself, yourselves and really think it through. Um, because I, I do believe it's critical in understanding what's going on here. And we'll talk specifically about that as we get there. Uh, last night, Cheryl and I went down to um, Linwood. Took her down there for my Mother's Day gift to her. I took her away from the kids. Kind of how I blessed her. And we went out to dinner and went uh, dress shopping. And not for me. For her. As we're driving back, it was, it was getting kind of late, uh, a little after 10, and so we turned on the radio to KVI, and it was the show Coast to Coast. Have you ever heard that show, Coast to Coast with Art Bell? They're always talking about aliens, and you know. Anyway, interesting show, and we were just kind of listening, seeing what was up, and the host on there was reading some fan mail that was coming in. And one of the questions that was asked in this fan mail it caught our attention right away. We turned the radio up. The question was, should I be worried or concerned on June the 6th of this year? June being the 6th month, June the 6th, 2006. 666. Six, six. And I kind of rolled my eyes and I said out loud, Cheryl's sitting right there, and I said, you know what, if he understood what Revelation said, if everybody understood what Revelation said, the number 666 would not freak out anybody because it's very simply the number of a man. It's John's way, it's Jesus' way through John of explaining to us that Antichrist will be a man. That six is a, is a human number. It's a number that never gets to seven. As we ended up last week talking about seven is that perfect completion. Jesus completes us. It's, that's where we find our great fulfillment is in Jesus Christ and not in a man. But the fact is, we again read in verse 18 of chapter 13, Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. It's not a date. It's not a number that in and of itself has some kind of mystic quality of evil, that if you happen to write 666, or if you happen to rent an apartment that happens to be apartment number 666, or you happen to live on a street and that's your address, there's nothing to the number that is inherently evil. It's just a number that describes incompletion, and that Antichrist, who will set himself up as another Christ, cannot bring about what the true Christ can bring about. So it's not something to be freaked out about. And I think that's kind of the attitude that, that we see beginning in chapter 14, we see happening with John. For if you think about going back over chapter 13, we talked about the beast from the sea and the beast from the land, and it's a frightening chapter. There's a lot in this chapter that we looked about la at last week, and it's one thing to break it down in Bible study, it's another thing to see this in a vision. Now, pause and consider this. John sees in a vision the beast coming out of the sea. John sees in a vision the beast coming from the land and the description of the beast that we saw from last week. And it's frightening and it's horrifying and even to his readers of the day it would have been a scary thought. What is this beast? What does this mean? How do we understand these things? And it would have been very unsettling. But it's interesting that at the beginning of chapter 14 suddenly, suddenly John kind of shifts a little bit to bring some understanding to bring some peace to bring I believe some comfort 
Again, last week we're introduced to Satan's, uh, Satan's beastly trio, the dragon, Antichrist, and the false prophet. Satan's false trinity, if you will. And in John's vision, it must have been terrifying. So for his readers now, John gives a cautionary word. Back in verse 10 of chapter 13, he said, If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. And then he says, here's the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Now again remember, not only was this chapter frightening, but the world in which John's readers and listeners was, were living was frightening. The persecution was intense. People turned into human torches in Nero's garden. People being, being fried alive in brass bowls. People being burned at the stake. People being thrown to the lions simply for believing in Jesus. It was a horrifying time in the history of the church. And these readers of John's would have had that brutal perspective. And so in the midst of all this, and John does this, he's going to do it again tonight, he makes these comments, here's the perseverance, here's the faith of the saints. I know it's bad. Hang in there, gang. Stay with me. It's going to be all right. It reminds me of that scene in the movie Princess Bride. You may recall the movie. There's this, this really cool scene where the Princess Bride throws herself overboard of the ship where she's being kidnapped and she ends up in the water and the, the, the funny little guy on the ship says, you are now going to have to deal with the shrieking eels. Remember that? If you saw the movie, you know what I'm talking about. And there's a scene where she's in the water and, and the music's getting intense and the fog is intense and all of a sudden you see these eels swimming around and suddenly one begins to charge, mouth open, teeth bared, comes right up, just is about to bite her head off and suddenly the scene shifts to the grandpa reading the story and he says to the kid, the shrieking eels don't get her at this time. And the kid goes, what? And grandpa says, you looked a little concerned, so I just wanted to let you know that the shrieking eels don't kill her at this time. She's going to be okay. And that's exactly what happens here with chapter 14. John stops in the midst of the shrieking beast, and he says, hey, hey, it's going to be okay. Let me fast forward you ahead and remind you where this is all going. Chapter 14 is again a parenthetical chapter, showing us something that happens at the end. John transports us to the end. He transports his readers to the end and says, hey, I know it's bad, beast, antichrist, it's all happening, but look at what's coming. Pay attention to what is coming. Verse 1, then I looked and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. And with him 144,000 having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. Now, there's been a lot of debate about this 144,000. Who is this? Is this the 144,000 we already read about back in chapter 7, or is it a new 144,000? The number itself immediately takes us back to chapter 7. Furthermore, this 144,000 in verse 1 here has the same situation going on for them that those do in chapter 7. The name of the Father and the name of the Son are written on their foreheads. What happened to the 144,000 in chapter 7? you remember where they were sealed? They were sealed on their foreheads. This is the same group. There's no reason to think otherwise, although scholars have debated the fact. But the truth is, Yahweh, Yeshua, these names are written on their foreheads. And again, we see Satan's mark back in chapter 13 as a, as a cheap counterfeit. He says, I want, I want my mark on their, on their foreheads as well. You know, I want, I want, Satan's always trying to be God. Always trying to be like God. But here at the beginning of 14, again, it's the 144,000. I'm convinced it's the same ones. But now, now, it's at the end. And they are in Jerusalem. But notice the number. 144,000. Same numbers back in chapter 7. It's not 50,000 who are sealed. It's not 100,000 sealed. It's not 143,999. The number is 144,000. What is John saying? They all make it through. God has sealed and protected these people, this group of Jews. He has protected them, and here at the end of the tribulation period, they all make it through. Everyone, not a single one of them, is lost. And Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 28, No one will snatch my sheep out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. It's that wonderful promise of our salvation. Listen, don't doubt that. Don't doubt your security in Jesus Christ. You've given your life to Him. Jesus says to you and to me, I've got you. I've got you in my hand. No one's going to pull you out of my hand. 
So there's 144,000. Let's ask this question. I want to break this down. I'll, I'll give it to you in a sentence, the answer to the question, who are the 144,000? Where are they? Who are they? When is this all happening? We'll break it down into one sentence that I'll give it to you a piece at a time. Okay? Piece number one. Where are they? They are standing with the Lamb. They're standing with the Lamb. This is not one who is like a lamb, as we saw in chapter 14 with two horns and dragon breath. This is the Lamb. This is Jesus himself. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18 tells us that we were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from our futile way of life inherited from our forefathers. No, we were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. This is the lamb who they are standing with. They're there with the lamb. But number two, not only are they standing with the lamb, they are standing with the lamb on Mount Zion. Now this is the part I was referring to earlier. This is critical to understand here. I'm not going to be dogmatic, but I'm pretty sure my opinion's right. <laughs> this specific uh, referral to Mount Zion, and, and by the way, it's interesting to me because one of my favorite of all Bible teachers disagrees with me on this point, and I disagree with him. And I've gone back and I've looked at it over and over and over, and I keep coming back to the same position. Which Mount Zion is this? What Mount Zion are we talking about? Where is this Mount Zion? I believe it is literal Jerusalem. Now the other perspective is that it's Mount Zion speaking spiritually of heaven. That this 144,000 at this point are in heaven. They're there with Jesus. And there are reasons for that. And you're going to see it in the next couple of verses here. But I believe it's actual Mount Zion. And there's a reason for that. Those who believe it's mystical Mount Zion, they refer to Hebrews 12.22, which reads, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the myriads of angels. Hebrews 12.22 talks about Mount Zion in terms of being the heavenly place, the heavenly Jerusalem, not earthly Jerusalem. And the context of Hebrews 12.22 suggests this Mount Zion in the heavenly location as a, as a spiritual picture as a, opposed to the earthly Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem today. Mount Zion is in Jerusalem. It's not actually a huge mountain. It's more of a, of a hill or, or a, a rising, a high place. But if this is heaven, then it cannot be the 144,000 Jews. You've got a little problem. If this Mount Zion is heaven, it's got to be a different 144,000. Why? Because the 144,000 Jews in the Revelation, as we've studied so far, don't go to heaven. Do you remember where they go? At the midpoint of the tribulation, do you remember what happens? They go to a place prepared for them. Yes, a hiding place in the wilderness. A place, a safe place where they are protected from the beast for the last three and a half years of the tribulation. That's where they go. That's where they're protected. They aren't caught up. They aren't raptured up to heaven. And, and again, some teach that. They believe the 144,000 at the midpoint are caught up and they go back to be with the Lord. That's not what I see taught here. They are protected. They're sealed throughout the entire tribulation. But they go to that safe place for the last three and a half years. At the end of that three and a half years, by the way, they are the ones, and we'll see this later tonight, they're the ones who are going to be ushered into the millennial kingdom. Not having been raptured and glorified and then coming back down like you and I, but in human flesh, as human beings, ushered into the millennial kingdom. And I'll explain that more in a few minutes. But the other thing to notice here that's interesting is that of the 162 times the name Zion is mentioned in the Bible, 161 of those times are literal Jerusalem. So the reference here to Mount Zion is much more likely literal Jerusalem than it is a spiritualized perspective. The letter to the Hebrews is the only place where Mount Zion is referred to in a heavenly spiritual way. Everywhere else in the Bible. Again, 161 times Mount Zion is always earthly Jerusalem. Let me give you some verses to back that up. Psalm 48 verse 1. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great kings. God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. Mount Zion, Jerusalem. Joel chapter 2 verse 32 says, It will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Zechariah chapter 8 verse 1. 
says the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath, I am jealous for her. And then verse 3 of Zechariah 8. Notice where the Lamb returns at his glorious appearing. It says, Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion. And I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. The Lamb King, Jesus Christ, the Lamb, will return to Mount Zion at the time of his glorious appearing. Zechariah 14 verse 4 says, In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And it's one of the greatest thrills literally that I've ever had in my life was standing on the Mount of Olives and looking at Mount Zion and if you come on the Jerusalem trip with us the Israel trip with us next year you'll be able to do that you will stand on Mount Zion or sorry the Mount of Olives and you will look across at the Temple Mount and at Mount Zion and it's just it's hard even to describe you can look at pictures of it photographs of it and go well it's kind of a dusty city it's kind of cool I guess you know there's ancient historical relevance to it but man to stand there and to see it and to realize somewhere nearby, Jesus' feet will set down on the Mount of Olives, looking across at Mount Zion. And he will come into and rule and reign from Mount Zion, from Jerusalem, in the very heart of the earth. And here Jesus is parenthetically calling John's attention forward again to his glorious appearing. Let me read verse 1 again. Behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. When does the Lamb stand on Mount Zion? Zechariah tells us, all the verses we just read, when He comes in His appearing, and with Him 144,000 having His name and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. And so John is being told by Jesus, Take heart, John. The dragon and the beast are hideous, but they will fail. Take heart, seven churches of the Revelation. Rome is hideous, but she will fail. Take heart, readers and hearers and heeders of the book of Revelation today. Your light and momentary troubles may seem intense, but the enemy will fail. And John says, take heart, tribulation saints. God is about to install his king in Mount Zion. In fact, it's such a done deal that David wrote about it in Psalm 2. Proleptically, remember that word proleptic, something that is absolutely assured to happen. So assured to happen that it's written as if it's already happened. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 6, it says, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Jesus will be installed. The Son will be installed. Psalm 2, it's a wonderful psalm. We could have read the whole thing tonight, but there's too much else to get to. I encourage you to go back and read the second psalm. Because it's all about the Son being installed as the king on Zion. So... Number one, the 144,000 are standing with the Lamb. Number two, the 144,000 are standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion, planet Earth. And number three, they're standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion, planet Earth, at the end of the tribulation. Oh, Rick, okay, you've made reference to that already about the fact that it's at the glorious appearing. How do you know this? Read on, verse two. I heard a voice from heaven. That word heaven is an interesting word. It's orenos. It's O-U-R-A-N-O-S. If we're just uh, writing it out in, um, in our alphabet. Orenos. I'll explain that in a moment. I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Verse 3. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones <coughs> excuse me. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. I like that. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Now there are several interesting points I want to make here. But in answer to, again, our question, how do we know that this is at the end of the tribulation, look at the last sentence of verse 4. It says, These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. First fruits. First fruits. What does this mean? Well, recently, back in December, actually, we studied through the seven feasts of Israel. Feasts that were both appointed times and appointed signs. That the feasts were also were at the same time commemorative of Israel's past, but they also were anticipatory of Israel's future. They taught the Israelites about what had happened past tense 
But they also portrayed and foreshadow that which is to come. And two of these feasts have huge significance relating to this idea of the first fruits. Exodus chapter 23 verse 16 tells us, You shall observe the feast of the harvest of the first fruits of your labors from what you sow in the field. Also the feast of the ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in the fruit of your labors from the field. So there are two feasts that both involve the first fruits of their gathering in, the first fruits of their labors, one at the beginning of the year and one at the end of the year. Turn in your Bibles to Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23, looking at verse 9. I want to spend just a few moments on this because this concept of first fruits plays dramatically into this 144,000 and their role and how we know where this is and, and the timing and everything. Leviticus 23, verse 9. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheep of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheep before the Lord for you to be accepted on the day after the Sabbath. The priest shall wave it. It's the feast of first fruits. We talked about this again but way back in December. Then he goes on and says, Now on the day when you shall wave the sheep, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old, without defect for a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be with it two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour, mixed with oil, an offering of fire uh, for the Lord for a soothing aroma. Now that's the, the uh, first piece. Look at the second one down here. Skip on down to verse 16. He says, Then you shall count fifty days. Fifty days from the Feast of First Fruits. Now you go on fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. And then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. This is the Feast of Weeks. You shall bring in from your dwelling places two loaves of bread for a wave offering made of two tenths of an ephah. And they shall be of fine flour baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. Along with the bread you shall present one seven-year-old male lamb without defect. And a bull of the herd and two rams, they are to be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. You shall offer, also offer one male goat for a sin offering, two male lambs, one year old, for a sacrifice of peace offerings. Verse 20, watch this. The priest shall then wave them with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering. With two lambs before the Lord, they are to be holy to the Lord for the priests. So there are two festivals, the Feast of First Fruits and the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks is also called Shavuot. You know it by a more Christian name, the Day of Pentecost. That's the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Shavuot, Day of Pentecost. Pentecost is the Greek rendering, it means 50. So you're now 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits to the Day of Pentecost, the Feast of Shavuot. Okay? But both of these two feasts have to do with first fruits. You might ask, well, which one's first? You know? Well, you actually have two firsts. You have the first fruits from the Feast of First Fruits, and you have the first fruits on the day of Pentecost at Shavuot. But they're two different harvest periods. Okay? That's important to understand. First fruits comes in the spring, all in one weekend, tied to the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread and First Fruits. That's one weekend in the spring. But then the Feast of Weeks happens in the fall, again, 50 days after the First Fruits celebration. So you have two first fruits. What does this mean? Well, you know that the Feast of First Fruits, if you study this and look at it, you know that it happened on the day of Jesus' resurrection. First fruits was resurrection day, which is perfect because Paul called Jesus first fruits. Christ the first fruits. He's the first fruits of those who raised from the dead. Now some have said, well, wait a minute. I, I thought even Jesus raised other people from the dead before him. Well, you know what the answer is to that. That Jesus is the first to raise from the dead and stay alive. Okay? Remember that. He's the, first, he's the only person to do that. To raise from the dead and to stay alive. And to continue to be alive. He is the first fruits from among the dead. Lazarus, unfortunately, died a second time. Bummer. Two funerals. I think one's enough. But he had to have a couple. And anyone else who has died and raised, whether raised by Jesus or raised later by the apostles, would die again. Now listen, it's important to understand this. There are many first fruits. In fact, there's more than just two. In the feast, there's the one in the spring and the one in the fall. 
But there are many first fruits to understand. First one is Christ himself, the first fruits. 1 Corinthians 15.22 For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But Paul says each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. So the first first fruit would be Jesus. The second group of first fruits are those who die in Christ. Those who are his at his coming. The raptured church. It's you and, and me. It's not the 144,000. And by the way, the 144,000, we read it just moments ago. Go back to Revelation chapter 14. We read it moments ago that they have their own song. They have a special song that they sing. We have our own song. The church has a new song, a song that only the church knows, that only the church sings. It's in Revelation 5, verses 9 through 10. It's the song of the redeemed. And only the redeemed can sing that song. Only those of that group of people. The 144,000 make it through alive. They don't die in the tribulation. And they're not raptured, they're rescued, as we talked about before. So you have Christ the first fruits. You have those who die in Christ or are raptured by Christ. That's the first fruits, the church. And then you have a third group of the first fruits, which here are the 144,000. They are the first fruits. They are the remnant of Israel. They are the first fruits of Israel. They're the ones who will be saved. They are an honor to God for His provision in saving Israel at the end. Now, consider this and think about it for a moment. Back to the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, Shavuot. Check this out. It's really cool. The Jewish worshippers would bring baskets full of their first fruits in offerings to Jerusalem. And as they went up to the Temple Mount, they made their way up there and they approached the Temple and the Levites traditionally would sing a particular psalm. Psalm 30, verse 1. The Levites would sing, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my enemies rejoice over me. And I wonder if that won't be the psalm that is sung as the 144,000 are ushered into the millennium. You have lifted me up and have not let my enemies rejoice over me. But then, then, on that festival, the Jewish people with these baskets of first fruits on their shoulders, the worshippers, they repeated after the priests another declaration. Deuteronomy 26, verse 3. They would sing this, I declare to this day to the Lord my God that I have entered the land which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. I've entered the land. Gang, the promised land has always been a picture of the millennial kingdom. Entering into the promised land as Israel did was a prophetic picture of those who will enter into the millennial kingdom for that thousand year reign of Christ. It was a foreshadowing back when they came into Canaan's land in the first place of a triumphant entry into the millennial kingdom. And it's such a fantastic verse. That they swear, they declare to the Lord their God, they have entered into the land which the Lord swore to their fathers to give them. I believe these are the first fruits of the remnant of Israel, the first from among believing Jews, the first who are honored to enter into the millennial kingdom. Again, they don't die, they don't go up to heaven, they live and they go into the millennium. Human beings. Now listen to this chapter, this, this verse, Micah chapter 4, verse 6. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts, even those I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant, and the outcasts a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. As for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come. Even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. And where does it happen? It happens on Mount Zion. And who does it happen for? The remnant of the people of Israel. And who are those remnant? It's 144,000 Jews. And so the chapter starts out that they are standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion. They have survived the tribulation, purchased by God to be the first fruits of the remnant of Israel. Now... Go back to verse 2. I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists, literally harping on their harps. It's the only time when harping is really okay, is when you're harping on a harp. But that's the literal language there. It's not harpist playing. The, the, the word harpist and, and playing is harpist harping. I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting to read that. They're harping on their harps. And this word again that I pointed out to you before, the word for heaven is oranos, which literally means either heaven or sky or elevation. 
It's a derivative of the word of the word oros, which means mountain, or lifted above the plain. So what you could say in reading this verse is the hills are alive. With the sound of music. Very good. Okay. <laughs> John hears a wonderful musical sound. An incredible sound coming from the elevated places. Coming from the heavens. The Uranos. We know to whom the voice of many waters belongs. We know that's the voice of Jesus. Saw it back in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of, of Revelation. We also know whose voice thunders. That's the voice of God. We studied that earlier on in, in Revelation. But now we have another description of this wonderful, this fantastic voice, like harpists harping on their harps. Music coming out of the heavens. And guess who's singing here? It's the Lord. This is an absolutely fantastic verse. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 16. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not. And to Zion, let not thine hands be slack. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. And he will joy over thee with singing. Zephaniah tells us God will sing. He will sing over his people. God will sing over you, and He will sing over me. The Lord's resonant voice, it rushes like water, it thunders in the heavens, and musically it envelops the 144,000, and they join in. Verse 3, they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. No one else can sing this. This is their song. It's not our song. We have our song, the song of redeemed. But this is their song. You and I cannot join in. We don't know the words. We haven't gone down that road. We're not the remnant of Israel. And we're the church, the bride of Christ. We're the redeemed. We sing our song. And they sing theirs. And we will be able to listen to this precious tune. But the most amazing thing to me about this song is that the 144,000 are not singing alone. They are singing with God. God himself is singing along with them. Now you might say, okay, hold on there a minute, Maestro. If the 144,000 are on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, how can they be before the throne? It's a good question. Really good question. Because they are before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And it's the one thing about this Mount Zion being on earth or in heaven that kind of trips us up a little bit. We say, okay, well, how can this be? Because you've got a couple of different factors here. If the 144,000 are the same ones, then they have to be on earth. They can't be in heaven. But if they're before the throne, then don't they have to be in heaven and not be on earth? What do you say? <laughs> Let's think about this just for a moment. They are singing. I think what's going on here, gang, is that two thrones, two thrones are in play. The voice of God booms from the throne in heaven. But at this time, the throne of the Lamb will be set up on Mount Zion. Two thrones. God says, Psalm 2.6, I will install my king on this holy mountain, Jerusalem. And Revelation 11.19, which again is just another parenthetical preview of Christ's return, says the following, listen to this, The temple of God which is in heaven was opened, and the ark of the covenant appeared in his temple. There were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Apparently, gang, at some point in the tribulation period, the heavens will be opened and the throne will be visible. That you can be on planet earth and be before the throne which is in heaven. In fact, I believe it's going to be much closer. Right now the distance between heaven and earth is huge. It's massive. We can't just look up into the sky and, and see the heavens. We can't get beyond our dimensions into the dimensionality of Jesus Christ. We can't see there. Why is that? Because currently earth is out of tune with heaven. We're not singing the same song. Heaven's got Michael and the angels. We've got Madonna and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Different music going on on earth versus what's going on in the heavens. But listen, when things are made right, when Jesus returns, heaven won't seem so far away. I really believe that during that millennial kingdom, the heaven and earth connection won't be marred and jaded and veiled by the sin that disconnects us with the heavens today. There's going to be a, a closer relationship. 
Now we'll get to this in Revelation 21 and 22, but even more amazing is after that millennial kingdom. When we head on into eternity and there's a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, we will have access to all three. New Jerusalem actually hovers between the new heaven and the new earth, and you will be able to move between all three and be present in any one of those places as, as you wish to move around. It's very cool. That way, until chapter 21, though, we'll get there. But heaven and earth will, at the end of the tribulation, finally be in tune. Verse 4. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Two words that are precious words here for the 144,000. They are described as blameless and chaste. Or virgins. Literally. They are pure. They are undefiled. And these people are pure because they went through the tribulation and they maintained their purity during that time. And we talked about this last week, I believe it was on Sunday morning, we talked about how purity is power. You remember these verses, Luke 6.19, the people were trying to touch Jesus and power was coming out from him and healing them all. The word power is that word dunamis in the Greek. Luke 8.46, uh, Jesus said, someone touch me, for I was aware that power has gone out from me. Again, it's that word dunamis. It is so often translated power, but also means purity. Because in the eyes of God, purity is power. Power is purity. I was talking to our teenagers a little bit this morning and just saying, look, sexual purity in the world today is power. Those are the powerful teens. Those are the powerful people. Those who can maintain their purity and stand up in a world that is increasingly against that kind of purity. Let me have a couple of teenagers with us tonight. You guys know what I'm talking about. Stand for purity and you will be powerful in the Lord. That's a great thing to know. Acts 1.8 says we will receive power, purity, dunamis, when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. And so a wonderful transformation begins to take place in a person's life as they follow after Jesus. We receive a new power. It's a different kind of power than the world's power. Psalm 17 verse 15 says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. That power of the Lord. How would you like to speed up that process a little bit? How would you like to have some control over that purity in your life, over the power? How would you like to be able to gain it faster and more effectively? There's a way to do it. The Bible tells us very clearly. A way that we can become powerfully pure even as we head toward the final days when Jesus comes. John says, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, We know that when he appears we will be like him because we'll see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself even as he is pure. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I've quoted it many times. But I'll say to you again tonight what I've said before. That power and purity, gang, it is increased as we look for the coming of Jesus. As we live for His return. As we watch for it. As we hunger for it. As we can't wait for it. It draws the purity out of us that the Holy Spirit has put there. It's not our purity. It's His. But that power and purity, it grows. It strengthens as we long for the coming of Jesus Christ. So during that seven-year turmoil on earth, we see clearly that the 144,000 were focused on Jesus' imminent return. Day in and day out, that was their concern. And that kind of focus yields spiritual power and purity that is truly beyond us. So, so keep looking for Jesus, and it purifies you. Now, <clears throat> going on in the chapter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 says the following. It was revealed to the prophets of old that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you, through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Listen, things into which angels longed to look. It's a cool verse. Peter says there was stuff going on in the prophetic back in the Old Testament times when the prophets were prophesying about this coming Messiah. And they were saying things they didn't understand. Explaining things, expressing things from the Spirit, by the Spirit of Christ, about when Christ Himself would come. And they didn't quite understand it all, but they said what the Lord told them to say. And Peter takes it a step further. He says even the angels didn't get it. Isaiah prophesying in Isaiah 53 about the coming of, of this Messiah, this suffering servant. And angels going, huh? What's that about? 
Michael, come here. Do you know what God's talking about here? Do you know what he's got up his sleeve? Oh, no. Gabriel, do you have any idea? And they longed to look into and understand these things, and they didn't get it. Spencer, we were just talking a few minutes ago, and I love, I love the comment that you made. I don't understand. I mean, I, it's okay, but I just don't understand. That's where the angels are. I don't understand this grace thing. I don't get it. I long to know. That's what Peter said is going on. What is it that they long to look into? They long to look into and to understand grace. Gang, angels are not saved by grace. Angels were made to worship God. Now we know a number of them fell from grace. They fell from God's presence. But the rest of them who stayed with the Lord and continued to worship the Lord and stand by Him were made for that purpose and have never known any difference. They are not people like you and I who came out of lives that needed grace and were saved by grace. They're not like you and I, those who can compare our past and our present in Jesus. And so they look into that. What does this mean? How does this work? And what's really cool here in the rest of the chapter, at least the rest of the verses we're going to look at tonight, God involves the angels. Isn't it amazing how much the angels are in the plan in the book of Revelation? We keep seeing angels popping up with messages and involvement. And it's as though God's saying, okay, I know you guys are going nuts trying to figure this out. Let me involve you a little bit. Let me put you on the front lines. Let me give you some roles here in handling these things. Because the whole time the angels are just watching us and we're their test cases for grace. They're trying to figure it out. You know, they're looking at us and going, are you kidding? Really? He's saying? They're looking at Laura and they're going, she's coming too? How's that work? They're trying to figure it out. So three messages from three angels, God allows them to preach this eternal gospel that they have so long tried to understand. Message number one, verse six. And I saw another angel flying in midheaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the, the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of waters, which is one more confirmation that God is creator and evolution is not a factor. But here it is at the end. And message number one of this first angel in the chapter is don't blow off the gospel. Don't blow off the gospel. Now what's great about this angel and the message he's given is that we are at that time of tribulation where all other voices, all other witnesses have been silenced. Remember the two witnesses in Jerusalem talked about probably Moses and Elijah. Raptured. They were caught up. They were there the first three and a half years powerfully preaching in the tribulation giving people opportunity to hear the truth and still believe and be saved but halfway through they're killed three days after that they're resurrected and they're caught up to heaven they experience their own rapture so those two voices now are silent on planet earth they're no longer preaching the message of the gospel the 144,000 whisked away to that secret hiding place somewhere in the wilderness and protected. They're no longer preaching the gospel. The last three and a half years of the tribulation, who's preaching the gospel? Is it over? Is there not another chance? God still is giving chances. Although, as I said before, I think from this point on, people will not respond. But God pulls out all the stops and now is using angelic agency and sending an angel into the heavens saying, Believe. Don't blow off the gospel. God is still bringing the gospel even when the voice of man no longer is preaching the gospel. And that's important to understand. There's a verse that's used, especially in mission work, quite a bit. It's a powerful verse. Jesus speaking these words in Matthew 24, 14. But this verse is often misused and misunderstood. Jesus says this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Then the end will come. And what people have said is, see, Jesus won't come back until we finish the job. He's not going to come back until we have gotten the gospel, ourselves, the church, until we've gotten the gospel into the whole world. Then he'll come back. So the rapture is going to be held off by our actions. Not so. Not so. We have no control over when Jesus is coming. He could come at any time. Only the Father knows that, Jesus said. It is not predicated or based upon our behavior or what we can accomplish for the Lord. 
And yet there are those who will say, we have to take the gospel to the whole world so that Jesus can come. No, au contraire. We will do our best. Jesus is going to come anyway, and we're going to discover that God can still get the gospel out to people even if we aren't the ones bringing it. By His power, His authority, His Spirit. I do not believe Jesus is talking about what the church will accomplish during the church age because His return is not dependent on our preaching. Which is not to say that we shouldn't be preaching, by the way. Don't you dare slow down in proclaiming Jesus Christ in this world because you don't want people to have to go through the tribulation to the point of this angel calling out the gospel because at this point, hearts will be so hard, they're not going to hear it. They're not going to hear it. And yet God is still bringing it. Now we come to the second angel, verse 8. Another angel, a second one, follows, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Message number one, the angel said, basically, don't blow off the gospel. Message number two, don't buy into Babylon. Don't buy into Babylon. It's doomed. Now, this angel is calling about something that's going to happen. Chapter 17 and 18, we will see the fall of both spiritual religious Babylon and commercial Babylon. And they're amazing, interesting chapters. And this angel is saying, don't buy into Babylon. Babylon is going down. Babylon is fallen. What Babylon? Some have wondered about this. Could it be Saddam Hussein partially rebuilt Babylon in Iraq? Did you know? Has Sodom considered himself the new Nebuchadnezzar? Have you seen that poster, by the way? An interesting poster that, that showed an ancient drawing of Babylon, and on one side was the face of Sodom Hussein, and on the other side was the face of a drawing of Nebuchadnezzar. Sodom Hussein really believed that he himself was Nebuchadnezzar reincarnated. And he was in the process of rebuilding Babylon there in Iraq. And much of it has been rebuilt. And we're going to get into that and talk about it in depth in chapters 17 and 18. But some have asked, could this possibly be America? America, the Babylonian, the Babylon of this time. Is maybe this Babylon, America? Well, again, we'll, we'll get to there. You have to wait for that one, too. I know I keep making them wait for stuff, but it makes it kind of fun. By the way, just for curiosity's sake, I want you to see something. You can turn there or I'll just read this to you. But in the book of Daniel... Chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. This is just, just kind of for curiosity's sake, for interest's sake. I want to read something to you. Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar had another alarming dream. We talked about one he had just a week ago. He called for Daniel to tell him the dream and tell him its meaning. Because back in Daniel chapter 3, Daniel had done so so effectively. Now Nebuchadnezzar says, bring Daniel. I'm having another terrible dream and I need his help. Listen to this dream and its meaning. Daniel chapter 4, verse 19. Daniel 4.19 Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. See, Daniel knew what the dream was, and it was upsetting for him. And the king responded and said, Belteshazzar, or Daniel, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. And Belteshazzar, Daniel, replied, My lord, if only the dream applies to those who hate you, and its interpretation to your adversaries. For the tree that you saw which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth. This is the dream he had. And whose foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged. It is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong. And your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. In that, the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground. 
but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him this is the interpretation O king and this is the decree of the most high which has come upon my lord the king that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it whomever he wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O King Daniel continues, May my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case that there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Verse 28 tells us all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. It's one of the most fascinating details of Nebuchadnezzar's life. This fantastic king went mad. He went crazy. He was driven out from his throne. It's said that he lived among the hanging gardens of Babylon, which was a massive, almost a mountainous uh, hanging garden with, with grasses and trees and flowers all throughout. And that Nebuchadnezzar himself went berserk, left the throne room, and for seven periods of time lived in these gardens, raced around, was drenched with the dew of heaven. His hair grew long. His nails grew long. In fact, verse 33 says, immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Remember, if you will, draw to mind the first picture of a captured Saddam Hussein. What did he look like? His hair, long, scraggly like eagle's feathers. His nails were long like eagle's claws. He looked like one who had been living in a spider hole. <laughs> he had been. Looked like a crazed madman. The first words out of his mouth, you remember what he said when they pulled him out of that spider hole? I'm Saddam Hussein, the ruler of Iraq, and I'm ready to negotiate. <laughs> Hello? <laughs> I don't think so. Interesting. Because of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar and the parallel that you see in Saddam Hussein. And you might be saying, okay, so Rick, are you saying this prophecy was of Saddam Hussein? No, I'm not. I don't think it applies at all. What I am saying is this. This prophecy happened, we're told, to Nebuchadnezzar the king. This prophecy was for and about Nebuchadnezzar the king and was completely fulfilled in Nebuchadnezzar the king. So what's the connection to Saddam Hussein? I just want to say this. Be careful who you aspire to be like. Because ultimately you'll end up looking like them. You'll end up being like them. Saddam wanted Nebuchadnezzar in all his glory. What Saddam got was Nebuchadnezzar in all his shame. He did become... Somewhat like Nebuchadnezzar. Not prophetically. But gang, if you aspire to be like anybody, aspire to be like Jesus. Go back to Revelation. Verse 14, going on, the third angel comes along with a third message. First message, don't blow off the gospel. The second message, don't buy into Babylon. And message number three in verse 9 Another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Verse 11, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They who have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. We read this verse last week, gang, and mark my words, nobody will bear the mark of the beast accidentally. Nobody will be deceived into taking the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast so powerfully described in a scary way, in Revelation 13, nobody's going to be tricked into taking it. Every person who takes the mark of the beast will take it 100% by choice. God makes sure of it. They will know that they are in full rebellion to the Lord God and they are accepting Satan as Lord. It's that crystal clear. 
The mark is not a result of deception, it's the result of rejection. And its result, taking the mark absolutely without return, means complete and absolute damnation beyond all hope. If a person has the mark, they will go to hell. And there's no alternative, and there's no coming back once that mark has been received. The phrase here used, forever and ever, it means literally in the Greek, forever and ever. If a person is not in Christ, gang, let's be clear and understand, if a person is not in Christ, they will go to hell. And they won't just go to hell until they've paid for their sin, or until God decides to change his mind. Hell is forever. Rejecting Jesus, even now, is laying the groundwork for accepting the mark later. A mark that is a one-way ticket to hell without return. And I don't mean to be harsh and cruel about this, but it's a reality that if we don't speak these words to people and let them know, then we really aren't showing the love of Jesus. Because it's by the very love of God that this angel, this third angel, is now flying around in the last second saying, Please, don't take the mark. If you do, you will die and you will be in hell forever. That's what you're choosing here. It's interesting. I, I think the Lord is always clear with us. He always lets us know what the alternative is. The question is whether or not we're willing to listen. Verse 12 going on says, Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. What saints are we talking about here? Tribulation saints. Those who accept Jesus during the tribulation. Who reject the mark of the beast. They hear the words of the 144,000. They heed the preaching of the two witnesses. They somehow believe the clarion call of the angels in the sky. Or perhaps, perhaps, one of these tribulation saints will be someone who remembers the words that you spoke to them just prior to the rapture of the church and the tribulation happening. Which is one of the reasons why I say keep speaking the name of Jesus even if you are rejected. Even if someone says, I don't want to hear it, you keep bringing it. You keep saying it. You may have a family member that you wonder if they will ever hear. You keep saying it. Because worst case scenario, the rapture of the church happens and someone misses that. We see by the fantastic grace of God, there is still opportunity. And maybe the horror of the rapture and being left behind, maybe some of the terrors that begin to pour out in the tribulation, maybe someone you know or love doesn't make it and goes right into that. But maybe they'll remember what you said. And maybe that will be the thing that, that tips the scale for them in favor of the acceptance of Jesus Christ. So you keep on talking. And you keep on preaching Jesus and don't give up. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. You know why they called him the weeping prophet? Because in all the years of his ministry, nobody believed him. Nobody accepted the words of Jeremiah. He went back to God and he wept. He wrote the book of Lamentations. That should tell you something about his heart. And Jeremiah went back to the Father time and time again. In fact, at one point he said, I just, I'm not going to preach anymore. No one's listening anyway. And then he realized he couldn't not preach. He said, your word is like a fire in my bones. I have to let it out. I'm compelled to share your gospel. So you keep on talking. What is it, by the way, that develops this perseverance of the saints? This is the second time now that we see John using this phrase. He used it in 13, again here in 14. Here is the perseverance or the endurance of the saints. What is it that develops that kind of perseverance? Something that we can learn and understand today. What is it that, that maintains this and grows it? James chapter 1 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And I've discovered, just in my life, that trials and tribulations will do one of two things to a person. Trials and tribulations and the discipline of the Lord that we even talked about this morning will end up doing one of two things. Among faithful people, they will ignite deeper passion for the Lord. If you trust the Lord and you're walking with the Lord, when the trials come, when the tribulations and the hard times come, guess what? Your passion deepens. It gets more intense. It gets stronger. And you find yourself walking out the other side of it stronger than you were before you came into the trial or the challenge or the discipline of the Father. But for someone without faith, for someone with very weak faith, trials and temptation causes them just to flame out, to burn out. 
Hebrews 12, 7 says it's for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Why do I say this? I just say it to remind you, man, when you're disciplined, when you're persecuted, when you're struggling, praise God. Because he's using it to make you strong. He's using it to make you better. And we've got to remember that. We've got to remember it now when the times are good so that when the times are bad, we can go, ah, God's doing something here. We can go, Father, what is it that you're doing? What's going on? What do you want me to know out of this? People are coming at me from different sides. People are trying to undermine me. Lord, what do you want here? What are you saying? What are you teaching? By the way, the tribulation will be a time of massive beheadings among the tribulation saints. That's what happens for someone who doesn't take the mark of the beast. Oh, they won't be ultimately you know, destined for hell, but they will be destined for the chopping block. As Antichrist will proclaim, if you don't take this mark, off comes your head. Brothers and sisters of ours in Christ Jesus in that day will be going through that kind of tribulation. But it will produce among them an amazing endurance and a perseverance through those last, those waning years, months, days until Jesus comes. They will grow stronger and stronger as John says. Here is the perseverance of the saints, keeping God's commandments and keeping their faith in Jesus. Revelation chapter 20 verse 4 says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or in their hand. Isn't it interesting that we suddenly now live in a day and an age where beheading is not something archaic or historic? It's now. Beheadings are happening now. Constantly in the Middle East. And did you know, by the way, that it is the only acceptable form of execution in Islam? That's how a Muslim is executed or executes. It's by beheading. It's the way they do it. Well, verse 13 says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Now, hang on a second. We're almost done, but a rapture note for you students of prophecy. The mid-tribulational view of the rapture, those who say that halfway through the tribulation, that's when the church is caught up and pulled out. It's also called the pre-wrath view. Teaching the church will be raptured at the midpoint of the tribulation before the final wrath. This verse shows that that cannot happen. Let me read it to you again and consider this. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. That alone takes away the possibility of a pre-wrath or a mid-tribulation rapture. What do you mean? If the rapture was mid-tribulational, why would the voice in heaven say, Blessed are those who now die in the Lord? If the rapture was mid-tribulational at this point that we're reading right now, shouldn't the phrase read, Blessed are you who are now caught up to be with the Lord? Blessed are those who are raptured to be with the Lord. It's not what it says. Blessed are those who die and go to be with the Lord. That's what the voice in heaven, presuming, presumably the Lord's voice says, Blessed are you who die at this point because guess what? You get out of the tribulation. If you die now, you don't have to go through the rest of it. And so you're blessed. This is how bad it will be, gang, that even God the Father is saying, Boy, if you die now, it's a blessing. Because if you die or face the rest of the three and a half years, it's just going to go from bad to worse. Paul said in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not pro-euthanasia, and I am not pro-suicide. I'm not saying, wow, if death and being with Christ is so much better, let's just do it now. Let's become like homicide bombers. We'll take people out with us as we go. It's not what the Lord's saying. It's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying, I love Jesus so much. That the first thing I want to do when I wake up in the morning is go be with Him. That's where my heart is. But my job is here. My work is here. My call is here. Fruitful labor. To be among you talking about Jesus. 
Paul understood that dichotomy of so badly wanting to be with the Lord but knowing he was called to be on earth to preach. Now one final note for those who endure in Jesus. There's a wonderful promise. Look at the last of verse 13. Yes, says the Spirit. Let me read the whole verse. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors. And I like this last phrase. For their deeds follow with them. Their deeds follow with them. Gang, we're saved by grace, but we are rewarded for good works. And the Spirit says their deeds follow after them. And I'm just going to read you one more quote here. This is J. Vernon McGee. He says, our works, good or bad, are like tin cans tied to a dog's tail. I love that. They follow us wherever we go. We cannot get away from them, and they will follow us right on up to the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, which is that place where we receive our rewards. Yes, their deeds follow after them. Which is wonderful to think that every good thing you do for the Lord follows after you. And every bad thing you do, ultimately, is forgotten by the Father. All He wants to remember are those good things tied to your tail, following along after you. The person you helped, the person you prayed with, that time you loved someone, the phone call you made when someone was hurting, the person you shared Jesus with, all these things are tied to our tails. And we're going to come to the judgment seat of Christ. Tail's just a wagon. <laughs> Ten cans of clanking behind us. Oh, I got some good words. I got some good words. And Jesus is going to go, well done, good and faithful servant. And the rewards will flow. And I want the rewards to flow. Let me just be a little bit selfish for a moment. I want the big rewards. Right, Laura? Gary, we were just talking about this the other day. I want a big, fat, honking crown. I do. I want as big a crown as possible, and I want it to be decked out in jewels, and I want it to be pure gold and just huge. I mean, the Pope will have nothing on this crown. I want one of those that just shoots up, and it's, you know, massive. And you might say, well, Rick, that's a little self. Why would you want that? And I remind you, because we cast our crowns before the throne. And the more I do for him now, and the more I'm rewarded at that judgment seat of Christ, the more I will have to throw back to the Father and worship to him, and the more joy I'm going to have in throwing that big old crown. So I want to encourage you to work for the crown. Go after it. Seek the rewards of Christ because those rewards will be your gift to return to Him when we are before the throne when the church goes home. I'm going to stop because I think those birds are just going to out-talk me. But let's pray and we'll go tonight. Father in Heaven, thank You so much for Your words and the way You bless us and encourage us, Lord. And I pray that we'll take these things home with us tonight. And I pray, Father, you will give us a motivation to seek those crowns. To seek the rewards. Because, Lord, ultimately, we just want to hand it right back to you in worship. We praise you, Father. We thank you for blessing us. Write your words on our hearts and in our minds. In Jesus' name, amen.